Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on a third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. Welcome to Off The Podium, an Olympics podcast as we come to you today for another interview. We've had a few weeks off from these, but we've done that because we've had to do some research for our next interview. I've had to read a book in order for us to be able to have this next interview, and it's very exciting actually today to bring this to you. Before we introduce our guests, my name is Ben, but I'm going to introduce Colin. Colin, hello, welcome back. This is exciting when you and I actually get to do a dual interview rather than one of us just usually interviewing someone from our own country. We're here to come together to interview somebody from your country. That's right. And for the first time, I mean, Winnipeg can uh, completely outnumber Victoria here. So that's a victory. <laughs> yes, th- that usually happens a lot, I feel. But hey, uh, let's do this in podcast form. But this is a-, a big chat because this is someone I think you've mentioned a lot to me about getting on the show, proud winner, Winnipeg that you wanted to be able to chat to and sort of coincided with the release of a-, a brand new book, her brand new book. The book is called The Role I Played out now, out today, very fresh through ECW. <laughs> press from the one the only sammy joe small three-time olympian olympic gold and silver medalist and uh, multiple world champion one of the best goaltenders in this country you will ever meet and ever see and so excited to be able to have her on off the podium today sammy first of all to you thank you so much for joining us on the program today well thanks for having me i'm excited and um Excited that Colin's from Winnipeg. We we have these tentacles. Winnipegers just we infiltrate every aspect of uh, Canada. So we have just spread ourselves out, and we are going to take over soon. Right, right, Colin? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Ben will have to come to Winnipeg. We're just going to lure him in. Yeah, so that's a Mallory thing. You need to you need to sell her. And my fiance believes Winnipeg. <laughs> all looks exactly the same. We were there and she, she does, was driving yeah. around the streets going, everything's the same. Nothing has changed here. What is this city? So try convincing Mallory and we'll <laughs> well, go there. Um, true. I, I would say that Winnipeg is not really the tourist destination <laughs> that you might think it might be. Um, but Winnipeg's about the people. I always say it's about um, just the incredible people that you'll meet while you're there. And it's just so friendly. I, I ended up marrying a Maritimer and I always compare the people to Maritimers that... Um, we just like to have a good time and there's no pretentious uh, bones in us. I, I, I haven't met Colin in person, but I'm assuming that about oh, you, Colin. Pretentious. Very completely. unpretentious. Yeah. No, no, don't <laughs> listen to him. Yeah, the guy is, is filled <laughs> with pretension. I've been there twice, Sammy. So I've, I might have, uh, you know, inducted a lot of tourism dollars in there in the last decade, more so than usual. So, hey, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Thank you for supporting our province. You're we welcome. appreciate it. You are absolutely <laughs> welcome. Uh, but it's the book, as I said, the role I played is out now. And all jokes aside uh, about me reading, because Colin will have plenty of those, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed this book because I will be completely honest with you, Sammy. A- as an Australian who has only been living in Canada for about half a year, I, I wasn't overly familiar with, with who you are. So I-, I deliberately, when I read this book, 
I didn't want to look up anything more about you. I didn't want to kind of research or anything. I just wanted to read this book almost blind, kind of learning about you. And I'm so glad I did because I think that made me connect so much more with your journey and your story of your career. So much more if I had have gone into this knowing everything about you because it's fascinating. This story that you tell in this book, it's so honest and emotional and just incredible. I don't think I've ever read a book from an athlete's perspective like this before because your your journey, your career is is incredible. And I, I really connected with what you were telling in this book. I have to say that to you right now. Well, well, thank you. That's really nice. I, you know, I, I work as a professional speaker and most of my clients, most of the people that are in my audiences um, don't know my story prior. So it's similar to you. So I think when I began um, first as a professional speaker, I omitted um, perhaps a lot of the um, nuances that now I include in my speech, because I think what I wanted to do for the book and in my speech is make it about the reader. You know, I hope that not only did you get to learn about myself, but really the journey of our team and, and the people on my team, um, but also about yourself as well. You know, thinking about um, emotions that you might have had in situations where you were maybe not put in the role that you wanted to be in or um, situations that I think are relatable. I tried to to really put the reader in in the book with me, going through the moments with me. And um, that at times was not easy. I had to relive um, some situations that were hard and made me angry. Sometimes I'd be cooking dinner and my husband would be like, why, why are you so angry? I was like, I, I feel like I just got pulled. I just got pulled from the game and I'm so mad. He's like, that was 15 years ago. So you need to get over it. <laughs> but it was hard, like reliving and rehashing all those moments. But it, it certainly was cathartic for me. So hopefully uh, I take the, the reader on the journey with me. And I'm so glad that I could get you to read a book. That's yeah. exciting. So it's, it's a tall <laughs> task. Yeah. Colin needs to find out more of your secret because, yeah. Did you enjoy our... the uh, little, little bit of Australia that was in there? I did. I've got it on my list of questions. Don't worry. There's going to be a question about Australia. I'm, I'm And there's there's even, I'm telling you now, there is a question I'm going to ask you that has got absolutely nothing to do with hockey that I'm sure no other podcast host will ask you. And I am so excited to talk to you about it. So stay tuned we'll for that see. one. Let's, let's see if you can surprise me. We'll go for it. <laughs> I'll be anticipating the uh, near the end of the podcast. Oh, I'm now assuming. all the pressure's on me. Gosh, geez. Uh-oh. <laughs> I don't work well under pressure. Cut me, Colin. Quick, take me on. Put me on the bench. (laughs) Just echoing what Ben said. I mean, I I think uh, as opposed to Ben, I had familiarity with you. You know, I was watching in Salt Lake City and, uh, you know, all the world championships throughout the years. Uh, And I think up there with so many of the other players that get so much time in your book, too, you're one of the faces of uh, women's hockey in Canada. And I was even caught off guard, you know, reading the book. I remember even messaging Ben probably about a hundred pages into this. And I'm like, this book is really good. And I think what sets it apart is that you expect you go into, (laughs) well, not surprised, surprised at the. I thought this book was going to be crap, man, but actually it's really entertaining. Wow. (laughs) Well, I think it's the, it's the, the direction that you take in the book. That's so surprising because you expect if you're going to read a sports biography, you're going to be reading about all the highs and, Really, I think where, where the book is at its best is where you're talking about those lows that you mentioned, those emotional moments, you know, being cut or not getting the spot. And I think you just put such a different uh, uh, a different face on what it's like to be 
just a goalie, even setting aside being, you know, in women's hockey as opposed to men's hockey, which people are going to be more familiar with the the famous stories of, but being a goalie and really having to fight for your spot. And I think that's what I didn't expect going into the book is that it would have been so much more of an interesting story because we're reading more about your failures and your honesty about the failures. Yeah, I think that that's something that has evolved over my speaking career, that that seems to be what resonates with people on the stage, that, you know, I do, um, I sign autographs and do a little Q&A afterwards with uh, with people and, um, you know, nobody recounts to me, oh, that was so great to hear about you winning the Olympic gold medal. Usually they like to tell me a story about one of their challenges or their um, situations that they went through, or maybe they lost somebody close to them in their lives, or maybe um, they were put in a role they didn't want to be in, um, then maybe they had to overcome some sort of trauma. And those are the moments that I think I've learned are more relatable, that that is um, more real and more raw. And it's more what we all share as a human experience. And so while this book is about hockey, for sure, um, I think it is relatable to the general populace because it is simply about a person trying to fit into a team. And that could be within a, a workplace environment, that could be within a family, that could be in a sporting environment. Um, but, you know, the, the various different roles and situations we're put in and how others at times are really dictating our futures, um, it is... That to me is is the human experience. That's not just a hockey experience. It's not just a goaltender experience. And I wanted to talk about what the real raw emotions were because I could have candy coated over everything and just said, wow, you know, um, achieve your dreams and believe in yourself and you too can achieve it. Um, and while that's important to have goals and be motivated, I think that that's not really how most people's daily lives and daily grinds happen. So I tried to... Um, be more real with it so that um, they could really be immersed within the stories and uh, discover something about themselves. You know, I think that I didn't want this book to be a book about lessons learned. Um, I didn't want to share with the reader, you're supposed to learn point one, point two, point three. Um, this is your takeaway. I wanted the reader to take away whatever they uh, chose to take away and however they felt in that moment it's going to be different depending on where you are at in your life currently on um, the situations you've been put in um and different parts of the book are going to resonate with you um so i mean that was sort of a heavy comment back but i do want to just say for your listeners that um we're doing this on zoom and colin has a picture of shazam that i'm yes. staring at <laughs> and that is really <laughs> i'm trying to be super serious as i like get this like thought felt <laughs> did, did, did you like the movie? Do you want it? We just recapped it on the Oz Network, available now. Uh, if you want to give us your thoughts, we can add them into that episode. If you really enjoyed that movie, I'm just really enjoying this picture because this is <laughs> this is my mind that this is who I'm talking to right now. So, Shazam! It was really a good book. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a secret. Our secret goal always was to start getting Olympians to recap movies with us. It's not about the book. We didn't read it. Uh, sure, you Not won a gold medal. I think cool, whatever. So Shazam, uh, what do you think? <laughs> but it's it's what you're saying about like Colin sort of alluded to it as well in what he was saying because you know all jokes aside, I have read books in my life and uh, you know I often do read a lot of biographies and autobiographies, and it's always sort of you know unique to get that viewpoint. But even outside of reading a book, a lot of people would look at athletes 
Olympians, professional athletes who are on the world stage and you, you know, you admire them. You kind of have this level. You talk a lot about in the book about your obsession with the Olympics and kind of looking up to these people. And it's not often that you get kind of that honesty, particularly when it comes to something like getting cut from an Olympic final or getting cut from a team, because no matter how we look at these athletes, they're going to face disappointments in their life and they're going to react like this. And reading sort of your reactions from the night before Salt Lake getting cut, you know, running out of the Olympic Village and trying to find somewhere by yourself just so you could have a cry and then everything after being, you know, cut, being made the third string goalie for for Torino and just that that whole period where you're basically bedridden from being so upset. I mean, that's what I'm connecting with because we've all got moments in our lives where we have those moments and it's it's just it was rare for me to ever see that from an olympian or an athlete or something like that and i can imagine for you sammy like so hard to be able to relive that to be able to put that onto page and have that open up to the world so a stranger like myself a stranger like colin you know people who are going to read this book can fully understand the, the level that you went through during those two moments in your life for sure. It is, it is strange, you know, especially now with the book launch and people receiving the book and reading the book, it is, um, you know, to me, it's less about the strangers and it's more about the people that you actually know, you know, mm-hmm. you, um, you tend to hide a lot from your friends. You tend to hide a lot from, uh, teammates and this now is, is real and it's out there. When I first wrote the book nearly 10 years ago now, um, I wrote it very superficially and I didn't really include too many emotions within it. Um, and t- to be honest, it was terrible writing. <laughs> I mean, I'm an, I'm an engineer by trade. It was very technical. I, I didn't really know how to write. And so I took a couple courses on writing and um, it helped me an enormous amount to put myself in the moment and to feel it again. But in feeling it again, it means you rehash it again. And it's like, you know, a devastating breakup um, when you see that person again, it sucks. Like it's awful. And so when you're reliving those moments again, if you're really telling it truthfully and honestly, you're, you're feeling it. And, uh, that was at times hard. And, you know, I said earlier, my poor husband had to deal with that a lot. Um, and he had to deal with, you know, the amazing moments too. So there's, you're living, reliving the highs and the lows. Um, it uh, was extremely cathartic after I read or wrote the book. I actually sent it to, um, well, my teammates, uh, just to make sure that the stories were correct and the way I remember them were correct. Um, but also to my coaches who within the book are not necessarily portrayed in the best light, um, specifically Mel Davidson and Danielle Sauvageau, who I never really understood their decisions at the time. And having gone into coaching and into management, um, I now realize just the difficult positions that they were in and the how I was just a small little cog compared to the whole organization. Um, but you don't feel that at the time. And you have these emotions and you have these feelings. And so I just wanted to really convey to them um, my respect for them, um, my acknowledgement of the difficult de- decisions that they had to make. And um, that I, I didn't want them to feel like I was throwing them under the bus in this book because, you know, it doesn't always say the nicest things about the coaches. Um, but they both were incredibly mature, incredibly supportive and uh, really great about the whole process. You know, they, they said that we had to make those choices and we stand by your choices. And well, there's things that we have learned as people later on, 
we may have done things differently. Um, we may have uh, communicated differently. There's still choices we had to make in the moment. And um, so I, I have the utmost respect for them for that. It's funny, Mel Davidson said to me, I asked, her, I asked them both if they wanted me to change anything. And some of the facts uh, Danielle Sauvage had me change, um, decided to remember them differently. But Mel was like, no, I just, I trust your judgment. And um, she said, you know, in the future, whenever I give a coaching symposium, I'm going to say to the coaches, you know, when you're, when you're giving one-on-ones with athletes and you're talking directly to an athlete, just remember that whatever you say is going to be written in a book. <laughs> so, so that will be kind of a guiding principle for me moving forward. I might change the words I use a little bit. Um, Fewless few F-bombs uh, and things like that. Cause oh, they, they swore so much those coaches. Jeez, my goodness. I didn't realize how that potty mouth. <laughs> so yeah, so it um, definitely, you know, I just, I'm, I'm glad I had those conversations because those were some tough conversations for me to have. And I really haven't had many with them since then. You know, you see these people in passing uh, at various events and stuff, but um, like I said, there's so many in the book, there's so many people involved. There's so many um, roles. There's so many positions that they are just one person, but we, you know, we think that they're the be all end all, but they have 30 people. They got to take care of plus an entire staff plus all this. So um, yeah. Yeah. And as far as like the coaching and everything, I mean, I think you start the book by saying, okay, almost, almost essentially saying apologies to anybody who's going to be offended with this. And when I was reading it, I'm like, you know, is this just the most friendly Manitoba thing I've ever read? But then you do, you do read more of the book. And again, I don't feel like you're ever harsh to anybody in the book, but even as far as like the competition from your fellow goalies, uh, and I, that's the other part that I think people don't necessarily, you know, realize when you look at, uh, the Olympics, typically they're individual sports and you're here in a team sport, a team sport that when you first get into it, 1998 is brand new women's hockey in the Olympics. And it was going to be very competitive. And, you know, I, I don't, again, I don't feel like you're ever harsh to the other goalies, but there must have been like some real competition and you get into it quite a bit in the book about, you know, okay, this is my spot. What am I going to do to keep my spot? Should I, you know, uh, be happy that uh, we're winning or should I hope that maybe they let in another goal so that, uh, you know, I can get my spot in the game. Yeah, it was, um, you know, a difficult uh, paradox of emotions that we experience as athletes. And I think just as, as people in general that, um, you know, we, we hope that people can't possibly go on without us, but they do. And that's the reality. And so how do you come to terms with being in a supportive role? You don't want to be too good in that role or they'll keep you there. Um, so you have to want more, but you have to also support the people. And it just, you know, that, that didn't necessarily come naturally for me. I'm a very competitive person. I want, you know, I always wanted to be in that, in that role, as I mentioned, um, and it's funny how Kim St. Pierre and I, who I talk a lot about Kim in the book as my uh, goalie partner, I think we have become better friends post-career than we ever were during. And that's not to say that we ever fought or there was any ever words said between us, but we just were not in the same social circles. So she was in the other net the entire time. Like, it's not like you're getting to interact with the other goaltender. Um, and then, you know, you have different roommates, you, the goal, the coaches put you in different spots in the dressing room. Cause you're in the big goalie stalls that had, tend to be in the opposite corners. Um, and so you're just not having this interaction necessarily with the other goaltenders that you might have with some of the other players. And so, um, I for sure battled with those emotions. And I talk a lot about that in the book about, um, 
yeah, should I, should I want her to let another goal in? Her failure becomes my success, but is that a way to achieve success? Um, or is that your break? Do you need to make the most of it in that situation? Um, how do you rectify it uh, with that other person? And there's one story in the book in particular in uh, before the World Championships in Mississauga, 2000, where the coaches told us who was playing in the final game together. And that was difficult for me because you see the emotion of the person beside you and you know that that's their dream too. And you don't want to be excited, but you, now you're getting to play the final. Um, and so you want to share some um, empathy with the person beside you, um, but you don't want it to be ungenuine. Um, so you just, you kind of never knew what to say around this other person. I tried, you know, I always tried to be supportive and um, tapped her on the pads in the dressing room and, you know, you do what you do because you're a teammate. Um, but I think our relationship has evolved since then. And it's, uh, it's too bad because I think we, we could have been great friends then. We just ne never were really given that opportunity. We we're always sort of forced into competition against, against each other. And that's the reality of the situation. I think that, you know, forwards go through the same thing. If they're on the fourth line, fourth line center, you might want to be a third line center. You want, might want to be on the power play. You want, might want to be the person taking this shootout final shot. There's always more that you think you should be getting and somebody is in that position that you're envious of. Um, so I think those emotions are real and they're, um, I didn't want to shy away from those in the book. I didn't um, uh, necessarily want to candy coat my own perception to uh, say as if I was this great person that just ha handled everything perfectly because I didn't and it was hard. Um, but in the end, I think that that competition made us all better as goaltenders and pushed us all to a, a new level. And it doesn't always mean you need to be friends with your teammates, but you need, you need to respect your teammates and you need to have um, that confidence that they can perform under, under the circumstance, whoever gets chosen. I'm glad that you said you sort of, you know, becoming friends more so with Kim uh, now. Because I, I, reading this book through your eyes, if this was a fiction book, Kim to me would have been the villain. And I would have been like, boo, right. Kim. Like, I want Sammy on the team. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. So I was like, yay, she got the team. Oh, boo, boo, Kim. So I'm glad that that's happened now. <laughs> yeah, and her going into the Hockey Hall of Fame recently was really – I mean, it was amazing. It was something that, um, you know, you feel a small part of her victory as well. And it, uh, um, you know, it, it comes down to a few coaches decisions that are different. Um, but she made the most of her opportunities and, um, performed incredibly well when, when necessary. So I say that right at the beginning of the book that she's portrayed as the villain. Um, but in reality and, you know, throughout the book, I, I, hope I convey her personality that she's just like the nicest, sweetest person. Um, it never was her choice um, to be in that, you know, it, obviously she wanted to be there, but she never made the choice. It wasn't like she was pushing me away or we we're battling the puck to, to get the puck together. We never could battle against each other. That's the ironic thing about goaltending is you are never in competition, like in a tennis game, you're not beating them. The choice is being made by somebody else. And the quicker you can come to that realization to not be angry at the person on your team, but maybe direct your anger at your coach. Is that the right thing? I yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. I mean, different sports. I, I was always goalie in field hockey back in Australia mm -hmm. and would try out for representative representative teams and never good enough. Uh, but it was, it was kind of, it's an interesting thing from that goalie's perspective. And, and I really like reading that because it is, you know, you think it's just measured on how many goals you let in, for example. But there was one of the stories you told in the book where 
the coach was telling sort of Kim, like, well, she had let less goals in, but I've got a feeling, Sammy, that you're going to be a better choice for this. It's kind of that vibe, isn't it? And that's, it seems a mm-hmm. lot of that throughout those decisions that you talk about in the book, not necessarily came down to just, oh, you know, Kim had more shutouts or you had more shutouts. It was also that vibe thing. And, and for the most part, it seemed most of those decisions worked out because mostly Canada would go on to win most of those tournaments. Well, and I think that that allowed the coaches, um, I think they knew they had good decisions. And it wasn't just Kim and I, it was another four or five goalies behind us that could have played and could have won those games. So that's why I think that maybe not as much um, thought, I shouldn't say thought, they certainly put a lot of thought into the choice, but not as much thought in the way they communicated it because it wasn't really a big deal to them. They could win with whoever happened to be in the net. And, um, you know, I think that's a testament to the goaltending in this in this country. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it, uh, it certainly wasn't easy, but uh, those choices that, you know, had to be made were made and um, so many other people could have been in those roles, but uh, we were the fortunate ones. You know, in the dozens of interviews we've done with, you know, Olympic medalists, the question that I always look forward to the most is, when did you know you were going to be an Olympian? When did you want to be an Olympian? And what we've noticed is the majority of people just simply say, you know, I just happen to be in a sport. And then they said, hey, you can qualify for the Olympics or whatever. And I, I think John Montgomery earlier this summer was the first person who said, I watched the Olympics and I said, I want to be there. So whatever sport it is, I'll do it. And that was kind of you. I mean, you grew up as a fan of the Olympics, sitting there, you know, with your, your checklists and your maps and watching the opening same, ceremony. Sammy. I, I'm still we doing still it. We still do I'm it. 33 yeah, and I'm, right? I'm still hopeful one day I'll make yeah. it. So I'm still doing it. Yeah. yeah exactly. We'll be doing it next year, but uh, you know, that's how you grew up. And you, you mentioned that you, you just, you had this goal. You wanted to be an Olympian. You and your brother both had the goal. You wanted to be an Olympian. And it wasn't even just hockey. I mean, you, you had scholarship in track and field, uh, but was for you personally, was it always going to be hockey? And if it hadn't been, would you have been happy enough to be swimmer, discus, anything else? For sure. It was, it was certainly my dream to go to the Olympics, but the summer Olympic games, I, uh, women's hockey was not an Olympic sport. So I never dreamt about going to the Olympics in hockey. I dreamt about playing in the NHL, like most of my teammates, but, um, because it wasn't a dream that we could have as women, um, it wasn't even on my radar. So we played all these other sports and while, you know, I, I pursued them and I, I did well in, um, other sports as well. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the sports that I did in track and field and swimming, those are, you know, world sports that are obviously many more competitors and Canada isn't always on top in, in all of those disciplines, um, especially at the time in throwing. So I, you know, I did well as a javelin and discus thrower within, within our country, but that doesn't mean you can qualify and get the standards to go to the Olympic games. So the reality in individual sports is that um, it is much more cutthroat to make it to that level. And to be a, an individual athlete at the Olympic games in any sport means that you've had to, uh, had to qualify your position um, based on your performance. And so I, you know, I, I've been asked if I think I could have gone to the Summer Olympic Games had I just continued to pursue those sports. And, you know, the reality is I would have loved to have. I, of course, I would have, you know, pushed myself as far as I could have gone, but that doesn't happen for everybody. It's like saying you want your son to make the NHL or your uh, daughter to make the Olympic team. It's, uh, you know, it, it just isn't going to always happen for everybody, despite the fact that we all might really want it to happen. 
Um, I think that I just was so fortunate to come through hockey at a time where it really was in it, in its infancy for women in this country. And, um, you know, I talk about in the book being scouted by uh, Wally Kozak, who's the first coach from the national program to see me play just haphazardly in some random game in Calgary. And had that not happened, I, there would be no Olympic career for Sammy Joe. I wouldn't even have known about the team. So those moments that you obviously you have to take advantage of when you're here in those moments. But I also, I'm not, um, uh, you know, I'm grateful that they happened to me, but I am not blind to know that they didn't happen for a lot of other people and that I was placed in a position uh, of fortunate circumstance. Um, but, you know, for my brother who pursued uh, swimming at the highest level, had a college scholarship uh, to swim, um, you know, he, he dedicated his life to it and, and came very close. And there are so many athletes that come so very close. And I think this is a homage to a lot of those players uh, that came so very close. And, you know, had we not had so many of those great players in Canada, it wouldn't have elevated the entire team higher to have to push each other and to compete for those positions. Um, but I talk a lot about the, the athletes that didn't make it. Somebody like Delaney Collins, who was the last cut from three straight Olympic games teams. And while she's a world champion, people tend to celebrate the Olympics more than they, they celebrate the world championships. They just know about it. And so um, she's one of those untold stories that um, you know nobody knows the name, but they should because they are so, so close and so valuable to the whole process and to the whole team, really. The, the other thing you're mentioning about women's hockey at the time not being an Olympic sport obviously came in at 1998. I loved that sort of insight into where players like yourself were in that period of hockey in Canada, you know, playing on AAA boys' sides, uh, the, the, the whole 1990 World Championships of, hey, you should wear pink because this will make you you know, because you're women, you should be wearing pink, just things, things like that. And here we are now fast forward to 2020 and so professional when it comes to just the the scouting and how team Canada and team USA and all of the major countries in the world have their women's programs. It really made me look back in Australia. Our, Our main sport is Australian football and only in the last couple of years have they launched the, the women's league and it, it's been huge and hearing all these similar stories to what I was reading in the book about how all these women who wanted to play football would have to play with the boys and they would be getting, you know, talked down to, you can't play this sport because you're on things like that. And it just, it made me admire Canada for being so ahead of the game. I'm sure it didn't feel that way in, in the 90s, Sammy, but, you know, we're nearly 30 years later and here we are now with this. So do you ever kind of look at it now it's easy to probably look at now and think that Canada was a bit forward thinking with women's hockey now that this amount of time has passed because we are at this stage now with women's hockey for sure I think that um the the countries that do well in female sports are the ones that within their society treat women with a certain a type of equality now that doesn't mean within our country we still there isn't further to go but um I I always felt like um grateful that I was in this country. Um, I don't know if you guys remember the Molson Hockey Summit. It was after, I think the men lost in 98 and didn't get a medal. And so there's this huge uproar in Canada. And so they had this huge hockey summit and Vladislav Trechak, who runs or ran at the time, the Russian Ice Hockey Federation, 
was asked by Haley Wickenheiser, one of my teammates, you know, why are you guys not putting any money into Russian women's hockey? This is, you guys are so great in men's hockey. And he said, well, the women in my country, they don't want to play hockey. And mm. if that was the thought process of the men at the time, then of course there's going to be no opportunities for young girls. Um, so I, I do think that the generation I grew up in, we were allowed to play. And that to me, meant all meant all the difference my mother's generation wasn't allowed you know there's an entire group of our uh, generation of women before me that were not allowed to play the game um, which is interesting because in the 90s 30s 40s and 50s there was women's hockey in this country and then it um kind of went, fell by the wayside when they started to um you know say that women couldn't play sports for various reasons, our uterus would fall out or whatever, whatever the, the societal norm at the time was. Um, but I do think that women uh, on the world stage, you can see now that you know Canada is, is a leader in, in world sport because of our society, because we um, emphasize uh, sport for women and for young girls and try to encourage them to, to stay within the sport. And, the, the countries that do well in women's ice hockey are not necessarily the same as in men's ice hockey. Like a country like Japan does very well. They've qualified for the last two Olympic games. Well, in men's hockey, they're non-existent. But in women's hockey, they've been able to elevate themselves because they've been given funding and they've been, lots of them trained in North America and they've been treated uh, relatively fairly and equitably by their federation. So as more federations start to do that, we're gonna start to see some of these hockey-minded countries start to really elevate their game as well. Um, and yeah, in Canada, we're lucky in Canada for sure. And that must make you feel even more uh, proud then when you have a, a young girl coming up to you, asking for an autograph, saying, hey, I, I love what you do, and knowing that she now has such a, a different opportunity to go as far as you did compared to yourself, or as you're talking about your mother or you know the women before you to walk into like when I walked into a rink and um, you know heard uh, heckles or jeers because I was a girl um, and now walk into a hockey rink anywhere in this country and it just be normal that a, a little girl with a ponytail is carrying a hockey bag and that's it's her hockey bag it's not her brother's um, and those questions are are not are non-existent it's normalized so for the most part I feel like um, it has been fully integrated um, and now I think the next step is integrating people of color within the game and new Canadians so that all Canadians can play. And a lot of that too is a societal difference from some of the areas that people are coming from, just allowing them and introducing them to the game of hockey. It might be something else. Um, and that's okay too. You know, I, people, I get asked a lot about the, the future of hockey in this country. And to me, it's not about hockey. To me, it's about encouraging play. And whatever that happens to be, wherever in this country that we live, whatever the games are that people want to play, just as long as they're given the opportunities to play, that's what's important. And it, you know, it could be soccer and cricket or um, badminton and and uh, hockey or table tennis. It could be whatever, as long as people are given the same opportunities across genders uh, and across uh, racial divides. I think that that's really important. Yeah, I think exposure and it, the examples you see is what leads to sports breaking out among, you know, uh, genders and uh, different uh, races and everything. Because if you look back to around the time that you're, you know, starting the book here, you know, 97, 98, 
you know, I can remember being in the same city in Winnipeg and there may be girls playing hockey, but it wasn't like you had, you know, these huge teams of all girls hockey and flash forward to just before uh, the 2018 Olympics, one of the exhibition games between Canada and uh, us was here in Winnipeg at the MTS center. And, you know, you obviously know it. You could you can sell out the MTS Center with any type of hockey here in Winnipeg. Uh, but what was crazy to me is I took my three nieces and I looked around and I saw probably a third of the arena filled with girls, young girls who were wearing their jerseys from their teams, entire teams going to this. And that's not something that you would have seen in 1998, probably not something you would have seen in 2002. And here you are, and you know, you're one of the faces that that really led this revolution in women's hockey. And you see all the other teammates you write about in your book, Haley Wickenheiser. I read a book to my four-year-old son every single night that's like the alphabet of hockey, and it's W is for Wickenheiser and women paved the way. You got Cassie Campbell, who's hockey night in Canada every single Saturday night, and you write about being there and watching her the first time you've got this book out, you know, you really have led the way. Whereas I, I don't feel like these girls would have been there in their jerseys in the MTS center. If they weren't seeing the success that you had being able to be part of the Olympics and being able to, you know, bring home the gold medal in games uh, and in, in Olympics where the men weren't getting any medals at all. It's for, you're so right. That it's about exposure and it's about seeing it. You, you, you can be it when you can see it. And, um, you know, I was fortunate to go to Collège Jean Sauvé in Winnipeg in Saint Mattel, Saint Mattel, um, and uh, <laughs> my gym teacher was a track and field coach. And because of that, I was exposed to discus and javelin. And I would have—I mean, who throws discus and javelin in high school in in Canada, really? Um, but because of you know that support and seeing um, uh, other track and field athletes being exposed to that. Um, I was able to get a scholarship down to Stanford to throw the discus and javelin. And I, we're just, you're sort of a, as athletes, we, I think we need more exposure. Uh, while hockey, I think is a great sport. I think it's really important that we expose our children to all these various different sports. And what's great about the Olympics is that kids can see um, Rosie jump on a trampoline or they can see a sledge hockey player skate across mm -hmm. the ice and they can imagine themselves doing it. And they might not have ever seen it live before, um, but they can see it at the Olympic games. And so I think we as hockey are, are part of the fabric of this society, but I think it needs to be more inclusive to more other sports so that kids can really find out what their passions are. Because you're so right that unless they can see it, they, ca they can't even dream about it. And mm -hmm. so many of those girls that were in that MTS center uh, there's now three girls um, that uh, are now on the Olympic team uh, from that game that watched as little girls, which wow. is really amazing to see. So Bridget Laquette and Jocelyn LaRock and Hallie Krasaniak were all at that game as young girls. Um, that's not to say they couldn't have made the national team eventually uh, on their own, but it allowed them to dream and it allowed them to um, picture themselves on the ice alongside us, which might not have happened had they not seen it live. Mm -hmm. it's it's great to hear stories like that 
And I, I hope that if I listen to enough podcasts with more listeners, that maybe I too will be able to create a podcast that will have listeners similar to those with, you know, going to games with, with players. Your Olympic dream is still not over. Don't give up on that, Ben. Well, I, I constantly say curling is my sport because Australia has, uh, you know, about 30 curlers in the entire country. I'm living in Canada now, the home of curling. So I feel if I learned it enough, I could go back and teach my fellow country men and women how to play it better and make the Olympics. So, you know. The ringer. <laughs> You could also win a gold in short track speed skating. Sure. Well, yeah, that's what we do. We just wait for everyone to fall that's over. What we do. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's basically what we do. That's how Australians no win medals at the Winter Olympics, right? <laughs> Which, as someone who, with your brother, watched those games, was glued to the TV, as Colin said, you're, you're tracking the country, things like that. As a fan of the Olympics, when you're in that village experience, you got to do it three times. There was one moment, I think, in Torino, you're talking about buying a, a notepad to write notes to your teammates. I, I can't imagine not going into an Olympic store because I know you guys get exclusive merchandise that the fans don't get, the athletes get some extra things. So do you just, like, bring all this extra cash and just come home with suitcases filled with all this Olympic memorabilia that you never throw out? So, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm a junkie. Yes. But that's the whole thing, you know, Jennifer Botro is one of my best friends and I talk a lot about her in the book and um, her dad is a famous sports psychologist who's worked with NHL teams. Her brother uh, was GM of the Buffalo Sabres, won three world junior um, championships for Canada. Um, and her mom was an Olympic speed skater. So she grew up in this environment where that was normal. Um, you know, pursuing this excellence was, was normal. And that's not to say she didn't appreciate the moment um, and wasn't grateful. Uh, but she wasn't like me. I mean, I was just like, I need to buy every poster on the wall and I need to uh, trade everything that I, you know, I want everything from every country. And, um, I, I certainly was that athlete. Um, you know, I got into the pin trading. I was fully immersed in the Olympic Games, So it's probably good that a lot of times I sat on the bench because who, who knows if I was tired, but I, I was the best Olympic games tourist that has ever existed. That's my gold medal right there. That that's the one you want. That's that's a good one to have. So yes, I have some very cool stuff from the Olympic Games, and I liked bringing home the random stuff. Like I brought home my, I gave my brother from Nagano a um, napkin dispenser. That right. was wow. That that's the gold medal of of items there. For the rest of his life, and it yeah. you know has the Nagano Games Olympic. Like those kind of things are really. I I love those like little knickknacky things. They're just mm. awesome. And your first games were Nagano and you were obviously elated to be there. You were the third string goalie. You didn't get to play though. And that is uh, another large part of the book is uh, I guess the issue with what happens when you are a player who is very responsible for getting the, the, the country, getting the team to the games. But then just because you don't happen to play in those games, you don't get a medal. And this is something that's obviously changed now, but you, that was your first Olympic experience was living through that. You were an Olympian, you were responsible for being there and then you didn't get to take home the medal. What did that feel like, you know, going through the games and then, I mean, how many other players, was it only you or was it something that struck a lot of the team? They didn't get to take home a medal just because they weren't part of the Olympic games themselves. Yeah, so it was just me. <laughs> I wow, was the only one. That's brutal. Ouch. Um, however, I have since learned that this happens in a lot of different sports. So I have a good friend of mine who is a um, synchronized swimmer. Uh, they won a bronze in Sydney, actually. And um, uh, her 
uh, first Olympic Games, she was deemed to be the alternate. Now, what that means is you travel to the games and you are, um, you, you know, you're part of the team and you're um, swimming right up until the final, um, right up until the finals. You could actually even swim in the prelims. Um, and then the final 10 are chosen and there's 11 on the team and one doesn't swim and one doesn't get a medal. Um, the same thing can be said in various different relays at the Olympic Games. Um, you know, they're chosen at the last minute. Uh, it might have been a different squad moving forward. Um, and, you know, the final team gets that medal. Um, now in, in running, it's a little bit different, but uh, various other relays. Um, and women's soccer, the when we first won the bronze medal in London, um, I think that was our first bronze medal. Um, mm -hmm. If you are on the squad but never see uh, time on the field, uh, you don't get a medal. And there was only one athlete that was in that position. Um, so, in fact, after she came home and, you know, nobody knows these stories. And uh, but somebody reached out to me and said she was having a really tough time. And um, she didn't think anybody else knew what she was going through. And, of course, unfortunately, I've had the same experience. Um, <laughs> and I think that that relates to a wider uh, landscape, because I think that, you know, oftentimes in a workplace environment, somebody puts a ton of work into a presentation, but somebody else presents it. Um, so they get no recognition, no accolades for it. And ultimately, I think what I've learned through all of that is that, yeah, it sucks. It sucks to not uh, be recognized for your efforts, but ultimately you need to be proud of what you do. You need to be, you need to find solace knowing that you put everything you could into that team, into yourself, into your training. And that's what you need to sort of fall back on. Um, you know, it's uh, hard at times because people still ask me to see those medals. Um, and I, you know, sometimes I, I mentioned this in the book, sometimes I'll explain it to people and sometimes I'll just glaze over it. Like I didn't bring it or it's just, it's such a long story to have to tell to people. Um, but it happens to more than just me. I'm not the only, I'm the only one on the, on the Canadian women's hockey team. Um, but, um, I'm not the only one. And in fact, in, uh, Salt Lake city, when Kim and I were the number one and two, uh, Charlene Labonte was number three. So she's gone through the situation uh, as well um, at, a, at a different Olympics. Um, and like I said, other sports go through it and, and we just never hear the stories um, of it. So it's, uh, yeah, it sucks, but you have to kind of take solace yeah. knowing you did what you could in that situation. Did, did you ever get creative? Because you do mention, you know, different things that you would do. Oh, yeah, I just forgot to bring it. You ever get creative and just pull out your Salt Lake medal and just <laughs> cover the, the name with your finger or something the year? There's. It's funny, after the Torino Olympics, you can go on eBay and, like, buy Olympics medals. <laughs> I do that and constantly. I'm a multiple gold medalist. You can buy, like, yeah. leftover medals that didn't get awarded. You know, like, some of the sports uh, – I mean, not that this is the summer or winter Olympics, but some of the sports award two bronze medals or whatever, mm. or they make extra in case more people. So there was like a figure skating medal from Torino for sale. And I contemplated it. I was like, <laughs> not really my medal. It has a figure skating <laughs> Well, that's what we, so, when we had Jamie Soleil on and she was talking about how they obviously got the silver medals and they eventually got the gold and she and David asked, can we still keep the silver medals even though we've gotten the gold <laughs> now? And they unfortunately weren't allowed to. Oh, they wouldn't let them. No, yeah. No. So that's maybe that's that's the medal that was maybe for sale. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> Which I mean, I, I love reading though in the book. Then when you talk about how in Vancouver they they changed that rule because the the men I think you said got them, but the women didn't or something like that. And it's also yeah, like so the raw 
roster, basically the roster in men's hockey was always deemed to be 23. So right. at every that they could bring 23 people, 20 can dress and 23 will get the medals. Um, as long as they're in and out of the lineup at a certain point, that's all that, that has to happen. So, um, but that was not the case in women's hockey. We were, we had a roster of 20. Um, maybe they thought that women, I don't know, didn't get hurt or something. We didn't hmm. have a big enough roster. They didn't have enough room in the village. I don't know what it was, but, um, yeah, so it, uh, then escalated in Vancouver was the first time it was 21. And then in Pyeongchang was the first time that it was, uh, at 23. So wow. it has now um, at least fair and equitable. And at the world championship level, it's been at 23 since 2002. So um, the IHF has re- recognized it. This, it took the IOC a little while to mm. come which, on. Which must be equally great for you to see that finally happen, but frustrating because then you're like, hey, guys, you should have done this like 20-odd years ago. Then I'll, then I'll have a, a, another gold and a silver in my collection. <laughs> medals from the past, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Well, they do that sometimes, don't they? They offer, like, historic medals. I mean, surely you can say, like, hey, guys, come on now and bring this. There's only, like, three Olympics that you didn't do this. That's not going to cost you that much. <laughs> it won't cost you. Like, can I just make it myself? Yeah. I've had some really sweet, generous people over the years that have um, fabricated some um, arts and crafts medals for me over the years. Um, Hockey <laughs> Canada, in fact, um, in, I guess it would have been... 2010, because um, the coaches also don't get medals at the Olympic Games, but they get medals at the, the World Championships. Uh, Hockey Canada started to fabricate medals for the, the coaching staff too, um, and for the players. So that was you know nice to see that at least they're recognizing that somebody is in that position. Um, but I also find it so sweet when um, fans will uh, make something for me, or little kids will come up to me and have, you know cut out a medal out of paper or some will give me their medal that they won uh, like a participation medal in soccer or something um (laughs) well that's it's so cute to see it and it really does make you realize that it is just a medal it is just a piece of something it's not um it doesn't take away from the experience i had it doesn't take away from what we went through as a team um and it just is uh it's something. It's it's uh, it's an object. It doesn't really uh, represent all of my experience for me. I'm glad you did get something because reading the book, I had the same thought as Ben. You know, I was feeling bad, and I'm actually looking right now at uh, the medal that Ben and I both have for a virtual 10K we ran back in July. And I'm like, well, we need to pitch in to get her her Nagano and uh, Torino medals. But uh, you have, yeah. I think, you have enough now, right? You, you want to make me one i'm all i'm <laughs> we'll work something out we'll, make we'll, sammy joe the best metal you can yeah yeah <laughs> we'll, we'll do something like that sammy before we let you go a couple of quick things I, I really enjoyed in the book uh you mentioned that i believe after salt lake air canada got uh gave you a basically a flight to anywhere in the world you could choose wherever you wanted to go mm-hmm. you went to australia which made me happy uh how, how was that experience and have you been back since so interestingly enough, um, both my husband and I chose Australia to go to um, wow. as a sort of furthest place you could go for the use Air Canada for the most amount of money they could possibly give you. <laughs> um, and I was just fortunate that one of my roommates from college uh, from Stanford days lived there and she was actually working for uh, what was Pixar in Australia. So it was really cool to be there with her and um with her partner at the time um, and to have sort of insider 
knowledge into um, into Sydney. She was living right downtown Sydney at the time. And uh, her partner took me on one of her, their work trips out to Melbourne. So I got to stay over there. And then I rented a car and I drove the um, the Sunshine Coast. Yep, yep. That was so I drove the Sunshine Coast by myself, um, just staying in hostels along the way. That was really amazing. But I think the best trip I took on my own was to the Australian Institute of Sport. So I just ah. hopped on a bus and, and drove out there and I hadn't really, you know, this is before the internet. So this is before you really have any knowledge, but I was, um, obviously I grew up in a swimming family and, um, the Australian Institute of Sport just evoked so much of what I think the rest of the world wanted to create for sport. And, uh, so I just, I walked around the campus. I, you know, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know where to go. Um, I thought the, it was just this, this Mecca for me. And so I just walked in and watched a swimming practice, um, a swim practice. And I just, it was like, they had all this technology um, around the pool and it just, it seemed like, you know, I wish I would have taken a tour, but I didn't. I just, you know, read my Frobisher's guide or whatever <laughs> I was reading. And um, I stayed a night uh, there and um, then went home. And uh, I think that was probably my, my best experience there because it was so different um, than the way the rest of the sport was really approaching the rest of the world was approaching sport and to see men and women on par with the same opportunities access to medical care and just being full-time athletes was incredible i had never seen something like that before so um that was uh australia was ahead of the curve uh when it came to that and that's really because you know they hosted the sydney olympics that they um, were able to prepare in that way and made a conscious effort to be number one on the world stage. And um, I think other countries have started to follow suit. And with Canada, the only podium pro program that came prior to the Vancouver Olympics was really, um, you know, just a duplicate model to the Australian Institute of Sport. And um, we're just, we're all trying to be like Australia. Let's be well, honest. I mean, I try hard everyone. to be like Ben. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's only right. natural. Yeah, that's why we want to host the 2032 Olympics again because everyone's overtaken us now. I mean, bloody United Kingdom you know, after London. Just <laughs> I have to I have to chime in for a second too because uh, back during Rio, we started a campaign on this show when we launched for Flin Flon. Uh, <laughs> what was it? 2024. Yeah, I think so, so. As a Manitoban. Yeah. You have to you have to endorse our campaign for Flin Flon at any point for any Olympics in the future. Does Ben know that Flin Flon is the only city in the entire world named after a cartoon character? I believe he does, we yeah. discussed that during the Rio Olympics. I remember yeah. that fact, yes. Very Flonaton. And the Flin Flon Bombers are a big hockey team there. Mm -hmm. Wow. The ambassadors of the bid. I like this. I mean, they this got is... everything. Yeah. What else what, do you need? What did we what we what didn't we watch a movie, Colin, and somebody was wearing a Flin Flon hockey jersey? Wasn't that um that Santa movie? The, yeah, that Santa movie with the horror movie with Bill Goldberg as Santa. Yeah. Someone's wearing a Flin Flon <laughs> hockey jersey. We 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 love that actually. I have yeah. not maybe watched the horror movie with Santa in it. No, we'll, we'll send you a, it's pretty epic. You'll you'll be you'll be blown Challenge, away. Certainly sounds it. Yeah. Speaking of watching, so the thing that I really wanted to touch on again, completely not olympics related at all i really love the fact that during the torino games uh you were watching 24 and you loved jack yes. Bauer. so i mean <laughs> is this are you still a fan did you watch it all what's your take on 24 for it's one of my favorite shows sammy so i had to ask you about it so it's um so first of all it was with sherry piper and uh it was piper had the uh, back in the day the cds you know you had to bring yep. the whole package of cds <laughs> with you and um 
so it was this brand new thing and um she stayed up all hours i mean she slept like four hours a night um she still does that's just the the way she was and i sleep like 12 hours a night i mean i sleep so much and when <laughs> playing i am you know sort of fully immersed in being the pro hockey player she never she never <laughs> and so she's always looking for people to watch these shows with her well in torino is a perfect um, perfect storm, I guess, because there I was not playing all the time in the world. And we just became obsessed. We, <laughs> we would leave practice and we would just run back to be able to watch these, um, these videos. And so we probably watched the each series in two days right. like, wow. <laughs> with being a full-time Olympic athlete at the same time. But the neatest part of all, all of that is our second game in Torino, um, Donald Sutherland came to watch the game. Wow. And so here I am, I'm the fan, right? And it's rumored that he's in the arena. Well, then the, the girls are like, Sammy, you need to go sit beside him. You need to go tell him we're watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I did. I kind of <laughs> made my way around. And they're like, how do you introduce yourself? I'm on the team, but I'm just not right now here. I hope you're enjoying the game. Uh, by the way, we're watching your son. Uh, <laughs> forward. It was such an awesome conversation. He was very nice and uh, about it. But uh, I feel like I was just like this little like goo gaga fan. Like, oh my gosh! So it was pretty amazing that he was in. I don't know if he was filming over there at the time or what he was doing. Should have maybe asked him. But um, mm. yeah, we we certainly did become obsessed. But it's not. It's the problem with Twenty Four is it's not the kind of show that you can um watch multiple times you know yeah. once you know the end you know it so it's well, not like you're, you you're idiots watch. like colin and i who do recaps and just live our <laughs> so this, but, later yeah. i guess i think the thing that makes later. me happy about that though is that uh you know if i binge watch it i can literally say hey i'm like olympians because they binge watch it in the <laughs> olympic village so hey i'm, I'm that's our and, sport that's yeah. how we're getting in for flip for flin flon let's make it a sport we even bought a special computer that had the CD player attached to it for the first oh. time. That was a huge deal at the time. Wow. I spent so much money just so we could like continue to watch 24. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. We even watched it for a little while at the beginning on, you know, the portable DVD players yep. that yep. we used to Oh, yeah. yeah, those. Wow. Yeah, and now we've got what phones, which are portable and just Netflix and all that yeah. kind of fun stuff. And Sam, so before I let you go, I have to ask as well, uh, squirrel bikes, did they not take off where you kind of <laughs> ran over squirrels? I no? mean, I'm always willing to, to ride the squirrel bike. So if anybody needs me to push the decapitated squirrel out of the brake pads, like I'm, <laughs> I'm available. Um, for anybody that is listening that thinks that that's a really strange story, you just have to read the book because that book. is, yeah. I still, I still giggle when I think about coming up to the situation where those girls were dealing with this squirrel. Um, and I still, still makes me laugh. So I'm glad you guys enjoyed that section. It was, it was brilliant. I mean, I still get giddy over seeing a squirrel here. We were recording yesterday, Colin. He and did. I'm squirrel. I'm on the third floor on our deck. My cat's like eyeing this squirrel off. And I'm like, oh, squirrel, squirrel. And Colin's like, it's just a squirrel. I'm like, well, if you were in Australia and a kangaroo was outside, you'd be losing your shit too. Like, come on, that's just the, regular to me. The crazy part was that he was impressed. He's like, but I'm up on the third floor. I'm like, these things will run across power lines. Like the third floor is nothing for a squirrel. No, that's... It's funny, uh, Jen Bottrell. So we talk about this story a lot. And in 2002, 
um, they did a little documentary about our team and they talked about, they talked to Vicky about the squirrel bike. And so that kind of came out and Jennifer Bottrell was doing a presentation out in St. Thomas, I think in the Maritimes at the university, the Tommies. Um, and she showed up and their team mantra for the year that year was all ride the squirrel bike. T-shirts. <laughs> and that was really cool to see that that had sort of permeated um, mass culture. So may maybe we can make, start to make science that say that. I'll Let's do it. We'll wear t-shirts. Or a medal. Yeah, or medal. I also, have a picture, I also have a picture of the squirrel um, in the bike. And oh. I wanted to have the book, but the um, the publisher was like, it is, it doesn't, it doesn't have a head on it. And <laughs> that probably wouldn't um, really go over well with the readers. Wow. <laughs> well, if you want to share that with us, great... we'll put it on our social media. We're happy to do that. Yes. <laughs> we don't have a publishing company. They won't care. Uh, It'll okay. be my pro for all further interviews from this point going forward. Shazam will be replaced as that squirrel pick on my profile. Promise? <laughs> Promise. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Wow. Okay. You set the bar high. Sammy, it has been so fun chatting with you. Of course, the book, The Role I Played, is out now in good retailers, on Amazon, wherever you get books these days. I don't know. I got it sent to me because I don't read, so I don't know where you buy books, but I'm sure people out there know how to do it. But uh, great, great chat. People read the book. You'll learn more about these stories and more, and uh, we really appreciate your time on Off the Podium today. Well, thank you, guys. Great to meet you, Ben, and Kindred Spirits and uh, Winnipegger and Colin, so thank you. Japanese, I think I'm turning Japanese, I really think so.